Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from Shop Talk in Las Vegas on Monday, March 20th. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, we have another first here on the Jason and Scott Show podcast. We are recording live from the semi-annual Scott Silverman and Alan Dick e-commerce influencer party um so we're just to set the scene we're in the big beautiful aria we're in the a penthouse a multi-level penthouse apartment we have a beautiful view of the las vegas strip and we went amongst the guests and found two of the most inebriated folks we could to uh to be on the podcast uh so first let's uh excited introduce charlie cole he is the global chief e-commerce officer of Tumi. hi scott hi jason Hey, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, we like to just randomly grab people that have no prep, so this is going to be good. That's what I'm good at. Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have Dan de Grand Prix. Did I say that right? Close enough. All right. And he is the CEO of Deal News. Good to be here, guys. Awesome. Have either of you ever listened to one of our podcasts? <laughs> I have. I have as well. Well, and you still agreed to be on. Yeah, wow, that's, uh, that's also another first. That's exciting. Yeah, so... Um, so, Charlie, let's start with you. So you're uh, obviously in, involved with the e-commerce operations of Tumi. Um, the one question we ask everyone is, well, tell us a little bit about your role. So uh, what's that involve and what does it not involve? So uh, my role's changed a little bit over the last four months because of Tumi's acquisition by Samsonite. Uh, so Samsonite Corp, I think most people think of Samsonite as a brand. It's actually really more like a holding company. They own brands like Samsonite, American Tourister, Hartman, Spec. Uh, High Sierra, and now Tumi. Um, and so with that change in role, uh, I now have direct P&L ownership from a digital perspective on any pure play channel. And so that includes Tumi.com as well as Amazon.com. What it does not include is Nordstrom.com. That is still managed by the, the, the manager of the uh, major account from a brick-and-mortar perspective because it drastically outweighs that of the pureplay.com perspective. Mm-hmm. And then the for, same, now. for now, yeah, mm-hmm. for now. And then on the Samsonite side, I'm kind of, I, I, I refer to myself as sort of a global kind of consultant as understanding where should we centralize, where should we not centralize things on a global basis across the brand portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and candidly, still trying to figure out what that really means because it's a relatively new development, but hopefully that sums it up. Cool. Has that, um, so tell us more about the acquisition that I'm kind of new to that. Is that, uh, uh, so it seems like you've expanded your sphere of influence, which is awesome. Um, is there kind of a, I realize it's like a holding company for brands, but is there kind of a horizontal thing where uh, you don't have multiple e-commerce groups, multiple site technologies, multiple buying groups, or you know all those kinds of things? Uh, Sales teams. It, it's a, it's about as uh, about as multiples it can get <laughs> in the sense that Samsonite's organization was entirely decentralized by region, so you had an e-commerce team in. China, Korea, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Canada, U.S., Europe, uh, you know, Nigeria. And so, you know, that allows a lot of autonomy and it allows a lot of the ability to move quickly. But it also meant that when I initially met with the board, they had 38 different ESP contracts. Mm, right. And wow. so, you know, you kind of have to take the bad with the good in your structure. And I think if anyone's been in business long enough, we know that no structure is perfect. And so I guess my role is kind of understanding where their structure is limiting digital expansion in general. And at the same time, trying to align on digital best practices in a way that we can scale on a not only multi-country, but multi-brand level. Because a portfolio offers a lot of complexity, but overall, it offers a lot of opportunity as well. Yeah, and are you finding that uh, you're having to manage all those conflicts now as you're you're selling product direct and you're supporting the channel and as you get more serious about your own direct efforts and obviously the fact that they hired you um, sort of indicated a renewed effort in direct-to-consumer? Is that a concern for the wholesale partners? Are they pleased to see you guys getting more digital chops? How does that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting dichotomy, right? Because... Um, 
I feel like we can be a much better partner to our wholesale partners because of having some semblance of, of expertise at the, at the top, right? And I know we were we were chatting before about this. Like one of our major partners across the portfolio is eBags in the United States. You know, they frankly get it. They're digital pure play people. They are happy to share data with you. And if you if they share data with you, you increase your co-op dollars with them, right? And you have the same sort of uh, kind of reciprocity that you would see in traditional digital marketing. And you can span that across co-op. Now, when you try to do that with a Bloomingdale's or a Saks, it's a very different conversation, right? Because they are not a pure play digital. They weren't born and raised in that organization. And so they think of co-op where you you really just kind of throw money into the chasm. And that's kind of where it is, right? And you get a page in a catalog or you get it, whatever it may be. And so um, I hope that most of the time we're adding value to all the partners. But I think at the same time, I think all of us as digital guys still sort of feel like the Martians at times, especially when you're working with pure play brick and mortars that kind of started doing digital in the last five to 10 years. Yep. And I'm imagining you also have a pretty broad range in terms of your partners of their digital maturity. Like you have some really... Yeah. digitally mature retailers that you're selling through and you have some people that are like pretty early in their digital evolution. Yeah. And there, and there's a really interesting dynamic that's happening in all of the, let's just call them omni-channel retailers, even though saying omni-channel, I think at this point is sort of about as cliche as it gets. They all have verticalized across the cost segment. So they all have an off price channel. Nordstrom has Nordstrom Rack. Saks has Saks off fifth. Um, you know, Macy's is sort of kind of still a little bit homogenous, but they're a little bit more down market as far as an AOV is concerned in the first place. And so what you realize is a, a lot of those organizations are still siloed from a P&L perspective. So if I grow the Saks business by $10 million, then we should be really happy. But if we do that by pay, taking $2 million away from guilt and putting $12 million on the top end retail, not everyone's happy. And, and your buyer in the guilt group is, is not really excited about that. And so um, you would hope that structure wouldn't get in the way of progress, but that's just kind of the way it is. Cool. Dan, let's pull you into the conversation. So you're CEO of Deal News. Tell us, so pretend uh, we don't know uh, what Deal News is. How do you explain it at a, let's, let's say, a cocktail party? Um, sure. What, well, what it, hypothetically. Hypothetically, yeah. Like, hypothetically so let's, let's say that you had uh, uh, Samsonite luggage and uh-huh. uh, you had an offer that you were running on it and you wanted to connect more buyers to your offer. That's what we do. Uh, we we uh, we have a, a series of products, websites, email apps that uh, reach about 10, 15 million people, depending on on uh, time of year. Uh, that all we do is connect people with things that you already have an offer on. So uh, we just do that in a way that's uh, hand curated. So our conversion rates are better than anybody's. Okay. So there's um, in the world of retail. Some people call them like super affiliate sites, and you've got. Uh, you guys, let's see, you've got um, Fat Wallet, Slick Deals, Retail Me Not. There's a lot of these kinds of things. Help us kind of help help us kind of get a feeling for the space where sure. do you guys fit in. Well, Fat Wallet's more cash back, uh, loyalty based program like E-Bates, E-Bates is yep. the owner. Uh, Retail Me Not's uh, bread and butter is coupon SEO. That's you find them when you Google for. Uh, vendor name coupon, okay. and that's not our business. Uh, we're 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 more like Slick. Slick uh, Deals is a user generated content site. Uh, that is uh, how they uh, define themselves. We're an editorial curated site, okay. and so the purpose to the user is very similar. The difference for us is the value we can deliver to the retailer is um, is find the product offers that they're interested in and connect people. When it's user generated content, you're entirely dependent on what the users are posting, which is great, and it's it's not necessarily always what you as a Got it. So just kind of to restate that. So slick deals is more like Reddit where it's kind of like users submit things and it's thumbs up, thumbs down kind of thing. Um, Retail me not is more coupon based. And then you guys kind of go out and curate. Tell us, tell us about the curation model. Do you have like this massive team and there's electronics person and a housewares person and a, this kind of yeah person. it's a lot like how that does, how does that work we have uh our staff is over 100 uh people we had 105 at the end of 2016 and uh, we actually start in dublin we have an office in dublin oh. and we start curating there so that there are interesting new deals in our products uh, by the time the east coast is waking up even though hmm. we are global all of our audience is u.s based for all intents and purposes mm-hmm. and so they uh, use our software we have a lot of data about what uh, our customers are buying our users are buying and they have expertise and one one of the things that always struck me as as most amazing about our process is uh, our curators are trained by us using our software and our techniques, and we're able to take people from Ireland who don't know what a target is. 
and actually get them to be very efficient where they can identify. We have a metric called uh, prediction where we predict uh, the response, uh, the conversion rate that's going to happen for uh, one of the deals we list. And we, uh, we have a game that goes on with our staff where they try to be best at that. <laughs> and the best performer of 2016 was an Irishman. Yeah. And that, uh, who had basically three years ago never heard of, uh, never heard of uh, almost all the brands that, uh, almost all the retailer brands that we all know. The, um, so are you able to close the loop and can you go back to a, a retailer or a brand and say, hey, we see that there's – we think there's this opportunity for a deal that looks like this because the curation – so there's a couple ways to curate. You can like take the universe of deals out there, yeah. but then you could also be more proactive and it seems like – the best partner because you're not user generated. Yeah. You you know, and these people get to be experts of these things. You could probably tailor the deals better by recommending them, and then they kind of become more exclusive to you, right? Because right. they're probably not quote unquote exclusive, but uh, they're you know unique to you, and that you've kind of worked with the retailer or brand to create them. That, that's when we get to the next level with the retailer. We typically start with the feed that they're giving to something like Channel Advisor. And so we can take that product feed and work with it to identify uh, what offers that we need to connect people with. And over time, we're able to say, we really are finding these types of offers are performing best and can recommend that you find more of those kind of uh, offers for our audience. Yeah. One of the biggest controversies in the space was, I think it was Tony Shea, and I can't remember what year it was. This was like going on probably eight years ago. And he got on stage and he said, all these coupon sites are garbage and that's not incremental. Um, they're just stealing your own, you're paying them for your own customers. Uh, we're going to stop doing it. And they're like these, they kind of came out. Yeah. There's a Harry and David thing that happened around then too. Do you, uh, <laughs> yeah. So there's like yeah. these two retailers came out very against these kind of like quote unquote super affiliates. Um, what's your reaction to that? And, and how, how do you, I think our biggest think? marketing problem when we're talking to potential retailers, uh, clients is to distinguish ourselves from that, mm-hmm. that we are not, uh, somebody who generates sales for you that you already had and we just steal your margin because we do discovery. So we are much more like uh, search. We don't have the volume that search has, uh, but we have uh, it, uh, because of our curation techniques and, and the years of software behind it, we're able to really do a very good job at that. That's going to perform much more like search and sales that you otherwise wouldn't got. One of the things that uh, really trouble us is last click attribution, where people will come to our site, uh, we'll find something they wouldn't have found otherwise, send them to the retailer, and then there's a coupon code search at the end, and uh, we don't get the credit uh, for that. And that's it's a it's a frustration. I actually have talked to a lot of people in our industry about it. I know Charlie is something that you've talked about. It's it's very frustrating from our perspective that uh, those those um, sales are being credited frankly, to the wrong source. Yeah. Well, luckily, only about 97% of retailers are using last click. <laughs> so we've only got 97% more to go. Yeah. yeah. It's just baffling to me. I, you know, I, I've waltzed in and out of kind of a, let's just call it corporate role to entrepreneurial role. And, and one of the things I was most excited about when I came back to a corporate role is all the technologies you can't afford when you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. And one of the things I was most excited to look at was attribution. And candidly, it hadn't evolved. Right. In yeah. like five to seven years, it was still the same two to three players offering the same things. And I've seen some cool stuff this week at Shop Talk, actually, that maybe gives me a, a semblance of hope. Um, but to your point, I don't think your 97 is that far off. It's still far away. I, yeah. I, I don't blame it on tools anymore, though. Like, I, I actually think there's pretty darn good attribution models built into a lot of the tool. Like, Google Analytics certainly yeah, the, the, has perfectly the modal serviceable. Tool is perfectly fine. Um, yeah. They're just for the most part, not used, right? Like they're, you know, it's, it's cultural at this point. It's more people than it is tools. Well, and it's, it's the easy, like the biggest epidemic in, in corporate America in general is self-preservation, right? And, and the best way you can justify your own existence is an ROI that everybody can understand. Yeah. Right. And, and, and so when, when Dan's saying that to me, like why try to overcomplicate something, even though candidly, it probably should be complicated just a little bit mm-hmm. beyond last click. But yeah, it yeah. drives me nuts. The, I guess the irony is that last click model is disproportionately underrepresenting your value to the sale. It's also way uh, misrepresenting that digital leader's value to his organization. Absolutely. Uh, because that lack of multi-touch attribution is also under uh, referencing digital's value to those in-store purchases. Yeah. I had that conversation with, uh, a, a, I can't remember the gentleman's name, a director of search marketing at Macy's at Catalyst a couple weeks ago in Nashville. And I asked I hear him, that's a great event. Uh, it's, you know, it's <laughs> the people behind it who are it's really a nice reference. Yeah. Yeah. The, the newer people. Yeah. <laughs> 
So uh, he's, he uh, owned up to the fact that basically they don't have a solution. They, they, they've tried solutions. Nothing works for them. And, uh, and since he's search, he, he really gets bothered by this because Karthik. he knows. Yeah. Was it Karthik? Yeah. Karthik. yeah. All right. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I, I, I think that he would be one of the first people to say, it sucks to be the guy owning search and you're not getting credit for the sales you generate. Well, yeah. and, and not to beat the thing to death, but ultimately it limits your growth, right? Yeah. If you cannot justify top of funnel traffic, you will not grow, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and I mean, best case, well, put another way, you're 100% reliant on your brand to grow. Yep. Right, you're not actually generating new interest because people need to hear about you through word of mouth or something. But you can't justify, for example, unbranded search, display marketing, uh, non-promotional affiliates. Like uh, you, you cannot justify it because you know if you have an ROI of 0.7 to one on unbranded search. Frankly, if someone said that to me, I'd be like, "It's pretty damn good. Like that's not bad and as a mono brand. Like I could live with that." Mm-hmm. But the reason I think that is because I know it backs into a four to one, five to one, six to one view through a first click, right? It, 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 but you will not grow and you will not generate incremental eyeballs. You know, what you see people sorry. do is they um, they get really optimized on this last click stuff, and then their volume goes way down, but their return on ad spend goes way yeah. up. And then, but then like they miss the revenue target. They justify their existence. Though. <laughs> it wasn't me. So, I was the market. So a cycle. I, yeah. So then they do that, and they're like, "Oh, we need to do more top of funnel." And there's like this kind of you know, yeah. oscillating that kind of happens. But there's a uh, there's a new trick. Uh, Chasing last click is a multi-billion dollar business, and the new trick doing uh, for that right now is loyalty, where <laughs> uh, you're seeing coupon sites introduce loyalty programs so they can absolutely close the loop on last click. And if they're building the engineering and the logistics to be able to do um, cash back programs to close the last click when they're already doing coupon SEO, I think that says something for you, the retailer, to figure out. Like, is this really where you should be putting right. your money if, if, the, if the system is being gamed that way? Yeah. We, we're actually producing an e-commerce movie, and I feel like you've just given us the title, <laughs> Chasing the Last Chasing Click. The last, Chasing yeah. the Last Click. It's like yeah. Kevin Smith's bastard child yeah. of Chasing Amy. Yeah, yeah exactly. I like that. <laughs> cool. Let, let's take it up kind of 30,000 feet. You guys are here at Shop Talk. Is this your – were you guys here last year? Is this my your, second Shop Talk. No, that's my first, actually. Your first, okay. What, um, what are some of the themes that you've picked up at the show just, just broadly? Um, fear. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fear of Amazon. There's a lot of fear of the lack of. Jason and I make a living off fear of Amazon. Yeah, so fear of Amazon good. is is is. Whew, it's mean, alive there, and well. There is a lot of of uh, way to make money from that, but it doesn't change the fact that I don't think anybody knows what to do about it. Uh, I have to tell. I have to tell my favorite story yeah. of the of the shop talk experience so far. I was walking the expo hall, and this guy came up to me, and he said, "Hey, um, I'd like to invite you to this thing," and he hands me a flyer. And it was um, brand protection by Amazon. Really? And, and I looked at the guy and I was like, that's the biggest oxymoron I've seen this show. Yeah. Which, like, <laughs> And he was from Amazon. They were putting on a clinic about their new tools around brand protection. Yeah. So that actually happened to me on the expo hall today. Yeah, the registry, the brand yeah. registry. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't go. That's actually <laughs> really, really good targeting on that guy's part. I'm yeah. sort of impressed. Well, I mean, yeah. you realize that you can't walk through the expo hall with your, your thing yeah. on, your lanyard. Yeah. Because, yeah. Just, you, you know, they, they pick you off. As celebrities, we have the same. Yeah, problem. clearly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, everyone wants to be on the podcast. But I mean, I think for for me the for me the the actually shot a vendor over to my head of marketing today and said the theme du jour is AI. Yes, and and my Jason's running a panel on that. My my favorite is every single AI uh, technology, and I just used air quotes on the radio because I'm an idiot. Uh, is basically Sertona's offering from six years ago. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, no, no, like we'll personalize the experience on the website and you know, we'll change your grid sort order and we'll optimize your site search. I'm like, I was hoping for so much more from you know what artificial intelligence could and should would and would be. Um, but we, man, we wanted flying cars and we got another flavor of recommendations. Right. Yeah. And, but I mean, but that is, there are, I mean, there are so many and it's like, um, it's kind of like how the first group of venture capital backed brands came out and they all had like a cheeky name, which was like an English first name with like a ubiquitous last name. That's kind of the same naming complex here. It's like you see ones like called Albert, Alfred, you know, like Justin, like that's like kind of the AI <laughs> shtick. So um, that's been very prevalent at this show. You're right. That's really been everywhere and just all, it's kind of the same. Isn't and it? they're all the same. It's all the same. Right? You're, you're, you're hoping in like, all your hopes are based on their algorithm being better than the algorithm next to them. Yeah. I think the difference is whether or not their booth has hamburgers at lunchtime. 
<laughs> or milk cookies. One of them had milk cookies. Milk yeah. cookies. That's yeah. a pretty good way to go. To get Jason, you have to have an espresso bar. He'll, he'll be in there 24 yeah. <laughs> Everywhere. Are, are you guys familiar with the Gardner hype cycle model? No. No. So uh, it's actually this pretty good construct that Gardner has come up with. And they basically have, uh, have sort of defined the path that all new technologies tend to follow, right? And there's this kind of early adopter phase and you start climbing up the mountain and you're at the peak of the hype cycle. Um, but at the peak of the hype cycle, there's still no revenue. Um, and so then you drop down into what they literally have called the trough of despair, where like there's this realization that this huge value that everyone thought they were going to get from something isn't there. Um, and eventually technologies climb out of the trough of despair into this like mature phase where they're actually adding value and having high It's like ROI. the slope of enlightenment. Yeah. Exactly. They use really uh, colorful language. But it, it implies also <laughs> that uh, you eventually jumped a shark and you're on the other side of the curve, right? And, yeah. and are we there? Are you saying that we're there, Jason? No, so I, I think we're at the my, peak. My premise is that AI is exactly at that peak, and it, it's actually a double whammy. We're at that peak, so we're going to have to live through that that despair of unfulfilled promises before we get to the, and, and that's the, where VR the slope is. of enlightenment. VR is in the trough <laughs> yeah. of despair, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, maybe yeah. it gets out of it or maybe not. Absolutely. Uh, and then the other problem at the moment is the word is so depreciated. Like, you know, IBM has decided to attach Watson to every single product they make. Um, and, you know, AI to some people is recommendations. It's, it's computer vision to other people. It's bots and speech okay. to other uh, people. Machine learning. Yeah, all... All are, you know, interesting. And I, I happen to be a believer. I think in the long run, those technologies are going to have a pronounced effect on our, on our business, but we're a ways away. You mean, um, you mean this podcast? Uh, well, machine well, learning will take over the podcast. Yeah, it, that's, that's like maybe you can do audio next, engineering in the next year. <laughs> <laughs> Little does Scott know it, it already is doing engineering. Well, uh, but but it, it, like to me, I, I completely agree with you. There are certain tasks we do on a day to day basis as at least e commerce professionals that there is no reason we are better at it than a machine, right? And I, I believe this is also true about autonomous driving, right? Yep. Like there is absolutely no reason a human with emotions and drinking problems should be better at driving than a machine, yep. right? Would so you, would you count global chief e-commerce officer in that bucket? Uh, no. Okay. Somebody's got to put like keep, keep, I'm a marionette runner at ultimately in my life and hopefully okay. those marionettes are ro- robots, but, um, just, just people that report to you, <laughs> not you. But I mean, my point is, is that like, like, um, I think, Certain things are going to always have to have a brand filter, right? And that's why people are going to matter within brands. But once you put that brand filter on top of something, is there any reason that a machine can't manipulate Google's search algorithm better than a person? I would argue no, right? Now, is it there now? No. And frankly, you really don't see that pitch here, right? It's not really where folks are going. It's really more the optimization of grids. Now, is an optimization of grids completely autonomous? I'd also argue no, because you have like the brand filter might have to align it up with the store window or certain like regional focuses or whatever. Um, but I do believe that it can work. I just feel like the offer right now is so ubiquitous, right? And no one is differentiating their big pitches. No, no, it's cool. It's AI. And that's the pitch. Which, but frankly, to a lot of practitioners, they have a board of director that sent an email that says, "What's our AI strategy?" Oh yeah, yeah right. So they have yeah. to go adopt one of those platforms out there. So they have an AI. Well, the CMO of Alibaba went out and said that every company will have an a- chief AI officer in the next mm-hmm. five years. Like, mm-hmm. that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. It's in Razorfish. <laughs> we already have four. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sammy and friends. Um, uh, so- so here's a good example. I was talking to a, a brand today and they were really frustrated with Amazon because Amazon's replacing um, buyers with effectively machine learning. Mm-hmm. We had Melissa Burdick on the show. There's a name for it. I forget what it is. It's kind of like, you know, um, data driven buying. So the algorithm, you know, a buyer gets you started and then the algorithm just kind of kicks in and yeah. it says, we need to order this many more to me suitcases. We and have it now. Yeah. There's no one you can talk to because like the machine is like, no, it needs to be. 12 of these and 18 of those. And um, so that could almost be like where this goes awry and that, you know, to your point, it kind of takes that human element out of it. Um, well, and, and, and like the, like, so it's a great example of if promotional cadence changes, mm-hmm. they can't, I mean, a machine can't predict that. Yeah. Right. And so do you buy into it? Are you overstocked? Do you have a sale event that you didn't anticipate? I mean, there is always going to have to be a human component of it. And cause we're a part of the program that you just alluded to Scott. I mean, it, it's, mm-hmm. and it's bitten us because, all of a sudden, we look up and it's April, and we said, "Well, we're overstocked and blanked." 
like in black, like every yeah. single retailer on earth. And now we have to tell Amazon, hey, buy more into this event. And there's no inventory left because yeah. the algorithm has been kind of doing its thing and, and, and we miss a huge opportunity. So, um, we, it's we've not ad- perfect. We've advocated on the show. Um, we're seeing this, a lot of our customers at Channel Advisor are doing this hybrid model. And by running third party, it gives them their, you know, the ability to control their destiny a little bit. And Melissa was talking about, there's kind of like, I call it this ninja level where you can actually have your third party and your first party overlap. So mm. Amazon takes excuse. You actually sell those SKUs yourself. So when the machine goes out of stock, you at least have some available there. Yeah. Um, it kind of opens the door. Uh, tell us about, you know, Amazon strategy and how you guys think about it. Um, we use that vernacular of 1P for first party, 3P for marketplace in case listeners weren't aware. Yeah. So we, um, I, I've had to completely reevaluate my thinking on Amazon in the last three months. And the reason being for to me, if you type in any, let's just call it unbranded search term to me, doesn't show up yep. luggage, hard side, luggage, backpack, purse, you know, business bag, portfolio case. You never see to me show up. So on put, Amazon, on Amazon, yep. on Amazon. And put another way, the only way you find the to me brand on Amazon is if you type in, a Peruvian word that you otherwise would never know unless you were fil- familiar with the brand. Mm-hmm. So it's the definition of margin arbitrage, right? You're basically on there to protect yourself because, you know, the 40% of all product searches begin on Amazon and blah, 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 right? But I, like, investing in the platform was very hard for me to justify because I was getting more, I was getting no tertiary benefits whatsoever. Now, same exercise, type in luggage, backpacks, Samsonite, American Tourister, High Sierra show up all over the place. Right. So as a brand portfolio, I now have to think about the business entirely different. Right. Because to me, I'm more than happy to just sort of play hardball and be like, the only benefit that I'm getting is, well, my motivation has to be one of two things. Try to basically pay Amazon in the form of margin arbitrage for the pleasure of being able to advertise an AMS. Right. So I can show up for luggage, show up in backpacks, show up in all that sort of stuff. Or, play hardball and make the experience of typing into me on Amazon so bad that the consumer goes type into me. Well, that didn't work. Go to Google type into me. And then we make our full margins. Mm -hmm. I can't do that anymore. Right. So as a portfolio, um, they are a huge SEO benefit to the Samsonites and American tourists of the world. So our portfolio strategy is hopefully such where we can work with Amazon to, I mean, the only one, the only thing that makes me just batty is lost by bucks. Right. Every time we lose our buy box and we now are now arbitraging our margin arbitrage. And, and I just, I just can't do it, you know, yeah. and, and that's the thing that we keep on working with them on. And, you know, I try to be cautiously optimistic, but, um, there hasn't been a lot of effort on the other side. And, and I don't feel uncomfortable saying that out loud on a podcast. I, I just think that for a brand above, um, commodity, mm-hmm. they eventually are going to hopefully have to play nice. Yeah. I hope. Yeah, and just kind of orient it, you guys. So let me see if I can get this right. So Tumi is kind of like um, not a luxury brand, but it's kind of a higher end brand. You could make an argument we're the most premium brand on Amazon. Okay, it doesn't really discount much. No. I, I've always seen when any retail site runs luggage deals, it always excludes Tumi. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you guys are kind of that's that's kind of the top tier, um, and then Samsonite's kind of in the middle, and Tourister is kind of the more discount. Yeah, totally kind fair. Of, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it must be hard with a portfolio because it does require different strategies and yeah. Because because you, you hope you hope to generate inspiration via Amazon like yep. that that makes them as a partner really exciting to me mm-hmm. right because you know I, I mean you have to always be pragmatic about it right like what percentage of the American population is going to buy a seven hundred dollar suitcase five ten fifteen yeah so. We we alluded to what well, we didn't allude about. We talked about last click attribution before. If I can get any sort of view through branding efficacy from Amazon for Toomey, even if they end up buying an American Tourister, but now the names in their head and they're that much more inclined to buy it five years down the road, that makes them really valuable. Yeah. But the the, the fact of the matter is is that I'm not getting any of that right now from a Toomey perspective, but I get a ton of it for AT and Samsonite. Got it. Um. So I just hope that we can be better partners on both sides. But it just you know. There's a reason why I made the oxymoron point. Mm-hmm. It just it hasn't been a two way street. Yeah. Do you th- so Amazon's very transactional. Do you think there's a day when it's more inspirational and you can kind of put those products in front of people, or do you think Amazon will always be a transactional kind of system? Well, I think right now, and this is not an insult because Walmart was and is one of the largest companies in the world. Amazon is acting like Walmart, which mm-hmm. is they're going to compete at commodities. 
they're going to go to mass and that's where the majority of the revenue is. Yeah. Right. But if they want to attract the attract and keeps the Cole Hans, um, Birkenstock had a very famous breakup with them last year. Mm-hmm. Um, keep the Toomeys of the world. Then they're going to have to act like more than, than Walmart did. Right. And, and maybe they don't, maybe they don't care. Right. Yeah. Maybe the, you know, call it contemporary plus price point becomes irrelevant to their business strategy. Um, but right now they're just hoping that their mass nature of traffic is going to make up for their lack of brand appreciation. And I'm not sure that's sustainable. Dan, you mentioned earlier that you can kind of smell the fear of Amazon in the room at shop talk. What, what do you recommend to brands and retailers that, that have the fear? Stay away from Amazon. Uh, Cause ultimately you're, you're selling your soul and why they have would you 300 do million active buyers. So I'm a two. What if you get a really good price for your soul? What if you get a really? <laughs> and there's a coupon. Um, so I'm a I'm a I'm a Tumi customer. I, I have a Tumi uh, uh, laptop bag. I have a Tumi uh, uh, overnight, uh, and I have a Tumi uh, suit uh, uh, garment bag. Excuse me. So mm-hmm. I I am definitely in Charlie's wheelhouse. And the reason that I would start at Amazon is because I start everything at Amazon. And it's not that I want to buy from Amazon there. I don't know what else to do, especially if I'm not really familiar enough with the Toomey brand to know that they have this, they have the store on Fifth that I can go to. It's not super far from where I live. They have, uh, they, they have the relationships at Saks and Macy's and so forth. But it's just so easy. And so when you do the thing that Charlie was talking about and you make it less easy for, mm-hmm. for the user, are you really losing that sale? Well, it depends on how attached I am to the Toomey brand. I'm pretty attached to the Toomey brand. I have five pieces of luggage that are Toomey, so I'm clearly attached to that brand. I'm going to go find it outside of there. And you have to just have a brand that's strong enough to do that. If you don't have a brand that's strong enough to do that, then you have American Tourister. And you can only sell that on Amazon, Walmart, etc. But if you have a Toomey and you go on Amazon, then you can expect that you're going to have an American Tourister in five years. It, it puts the pressure on the brand to differentiate itself with some other than price. Yeah. I mean, it's just that simple. I mean, and, um, you know, Scott, you said the strategy very simply. Toomey at the top, Samson at the middle, American Tourist at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, how does American Tourist compete with Amazon? Like, that's a tough question, yeah. right? Yeah. But what the real ch- question is, is how does Samsonite continue to differentiate itself from the noise of that bottom, bottom price point, mm-hmm. right? And if we fall into the, the cycle of just discount, 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 which is, let's not mince any words, it's how you win on Amazon, right? Yep. Have a low price point, you show up higher in the grids. The race to the bottom. Yep. And it's, it is that, right? Yeah. So Samsonite has what? 90, 100 years of heritage, mm-hmm. they can't fall victim to that. And so they can't let a distribution channel dictate their brand. And that's what I think a lot of brands are doing. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, you know, I don't know if this drove their acquisition of Toomey, but it's, it, it would be, you know, at least it's not just American Tourister, uh, you know, at least they have like this family of brands and they can yeah. try different strategies because no one knows the right answer to some degree. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I bet, we, we really I bet only American play Tourist in tons of it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. We don't play in one segment. You can make an argument that there is an ultra luxe segment, which is the Gucci or Mez Louis Vuitton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the point of view is, could you really talk out? That, I'm, that's where Jason and I shop. Just yeah, I, I understand. I, I could tell Single. by the I could tell by the outfits. Um, but the, <laughs> the 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 Louis Vuitton man or woman, I don't think you could talk him or her into to me. Yeah. Right. And that's why could you upsell American Tourist to Samsonite? Could you upsell Samsonite to Toomey? Probably. Yeah. If you have branded differentiation. Yeah. The Louis Vuitton customer, they still need bags for their nanny. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, I mean, yeah. I mean, we, we just hope we get as much market share as we can. People <laughs> buy their nanny bags? Yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you a horrible person? I, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, though, because I do feel in a bunch of categories, there are these sort of heritage brands that are value oriented and it it is an awkward place because it's the calvin it's, klein t-shirt yeah, uh, yeah. how Wrang- does that survive in an amazon world wrangler jeans all yeah. of those hundred year plus plus brands there's some pretty clear set of tactics for those high-end products there's a qu- pretty miserable but clear set of tactics for those pure price-based products but but how do you retain that heritage brand story I think you do it like Timmy's doing it. You have a few promotions a year, yeah. and you don't uh, find those products at Kohl's with a with a. There's no um, Toomey red label at Kohl's. <laughs> yep. And by the way, there's a much easier answer to the uh, how do you overcome fear of Amazon? It's moved to China. Well, then you have a new fear. Exactly. Yeah. Suddenly, Amazon doesn't look so scary. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see the Alibaba presentation today? Where it's basically. 
um, to all your baits are blown. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. everything is is China. Welcome to the new world. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. by the way, only half our population is on the internet yet. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, we're, we're in the half. So exactly. Cool. So, um, so some of the brand conversations we have when I'm when I talk to brands, it's been this thing in the last eighteen months. So some of the big topics are channel conflict. Um, and this is kind of around the topic. Also, a lot of the brands are starting to say, all right, my channels are shrinking. Amazon is the biggest and fastest growing game in town. Um, I need to kind of have a direct strategy and I don't know where your brands kind of lie in that. that so we'd love to talk about that. But then as they think about that, you know, how do they build more of a direct strategy? Then what pops up is channel conflict. You know, most of, most of your sales are probably through a channel. You don't want to disrupt that. Um, and then map pricing. What do you do about authorized resellers that kind of ties into this pricing kind of discussion? Because, you know, a lot of them, a lot of people come to me and they're really frustrated with Amazon because a third party seller started lowering a price. Yep. Amazon followed with the 1P part and they're kind of like, how do I stop that? So that, that's kind of a common theme. Um, we'd love to kind of talk about any of those topics uh, near and dear to your heart. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're all pretty it's the first time you've heard of this. Yeah. I mean, well. So the the Tumi Samsonite acquisition was sort of um, this perfect MBA case study. And the reason I say that is Tumi was 70 to 80% direct and Samsonite was 70 to 80% wholesale. And Tumi was 70 to 80% US and Samsonite was 70 to 80% international. Okay. Right? So all those topics of channel conflict to Tumi we always had leverage, right? We were always easy to say like, well, I mean, we can walk away from this money because we're a direct retailer. Yep. Um, and, but then now getting to Samsonite, the pricing is such where it's remarkably diverse, right? Remarkably. And, and all those things you just mentioned of uh, somebody taking a $99 bag and making it 97 and showing up in the buy box, it happens all the time. Yep. Um, I, I just don't see how it's sustainable. Yep. Uh, I mean, I think map pricing has to be the only way Frankly, retailers and wholesalers coexist. Like I, I just don't think any other way is sustainable. And there's another really interesting component that you sort of mentioned, but in a, in a more roundabout way. Well, but hey, we overbought for Nordstrom, so we're just going to ship it all to Nordstrom Rack, which is this ultimate kind of brand, more fluffy, not as quantifiable. I don't want too many bags in the rack. I don't want too many bags on Guilt Group, but. Does that mean they overbuy on purpose so they don't care about full price sell through? Mm. And, and, and it just becomes really murky. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the only way, I, I don't see how a brand beyond commodity uh, doesn't have map pricing. And I think you also have to be very careful about how you manage off price channels, yeah. uh, regardless of what they are, because you used the phrase race to the bottom before. Mm hmm. It's the ultimate race at the bottom, as has been proven by, frankly, all their businesses. Yeah. We love map pricing. And the reason is, is because it creates demand. For but your deal site, you're, I like, know. you're, try, you're constantly trying to break You're the antithesis of map pricing. But yeah. what happens is, is that if you're exactly in theory, right? But in fact, when there is, because there, there is a promotion at some point, and when a Tumi or a coach or whatever goes on sale, uh, for that brief moment in time, demand spikes and we're able to generate more volume because there's more interest. So it actually works really well for us, too. Got it. I just, I, I really encourage every brand listening to this podcast, get your pricing in order. It yeah. drives me, it's like so obvious to me. And I don't know if I'm just crazy, mm -hmm. but it's just so obvious to me. One thing I've seen the suitcase guys do, and I don't know which of your three brands kind of does this, but um, you create unique SKUs per channel. Yep. So, you know, you'll do a four case bundle. I think maybe it's Tourster that does this on Amazon and then you can't really price compare that anywhere because yep. there's like a five at Macy's and a, you know, individuals somewhere else kind of thing. Um, so the ultimate kind of people that do that are like Samsung with TVs. You yep. can never price compare their things because, you know, the model numbers, there's a different skew for Best Buy and, you know, every mattresses. mattresses is the other one forever. Is that, is that part of the, the strategy or you're, you're probably probably having to learn that because to me probably had the ability to not have to do and that. The answer to your question is yes, though. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, the challenge is um, we're all getting smarter, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so I think it's just a matter of actually offering a different product and bundles are fine, right? I think bundles are a good way to do it. Um, but hopefully we continue to work towards a truly unique skew as opposed to unique by way of model number. Yeah, uh, which which I think is an important to I actually think the unique by way of model number is going away. I think I that was so. a, a a I'm not going to say a good tactic. That was a potentially effective tactic in the old world of obfuscation, where the shopper only knew what the retailer told them. Uh, but today, in this world of perfect transparency, um, with all these deal aggregation sites and all these other um, 
social user generated content sites, you just can't get away with something like having an identical SKU with two model numbers and expect to trick consumers. You, you take one millimeter off the trim, right? Like, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think you're right, ultimately. How about um, another one that comes up a lot with brands is private label, and Amazon's getting really aggressive at this. Um, you know, I've heard from some of the luggage folks they're getting increasingly concerned because there's – I don't know if they've come out with their own bag or not, but they they've done some cubes. accessories, packing cubes. Basis, yeah. and Yeah. Is that – do you guys worry about that or you don't really worry about it because every retailer you've been in already, I imagine, has some kind of private label thing? It, it goes back to, to what Dan and I were saying before. Um, you have to have strength in brand. Yeah. Right. And if you, they shouldn't worry you. But the, as Jason said, like the Calvin Klein T-shirt, you know, they should be scared. You know, yep. if you do not have a differentiation between your repu- reputation, design patents, quality, after sales service, price. warranty, price, yeah. you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so I maybe from a point of naivete. Doesn't bother me that much. Doesn't scare me that much from a Toomey perspective. Doesn't scare me that much from a Samsonite perspective. Sort of scares me from an American tourist yeah. perspective. And I, and I think that's the way you have to think about it. That's what you're saying. Okay. Cool. In the, uh, so in the Toomey side, when you guys, you said you're 80% direct, does that mean you had to build up all that retail kind of muscle tissue, like going and getting an email marketing system and going and getting a big platform and going and getting a, you know, a much bigger channel. Analytics like, yeah. and, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, did you guys have to go build all that? or, or Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that that journey. Yeah, so I inherited uh, a hybris platform and a kind of a very V1.0 CRM, uh, traditional analytics instances, and, and sort of a lot of our expansion has been upgrading those systems. Um, you know, the, we our CRM did not have predictive analytics capability. It did not have a single view of the customer, including off. Uh, sorry, offline as well as online. Uh, it didn't have customer service data fulling through to be a predictive analytic component. So we did a lot of work over the last year and kind of updating the website to be more personalized and actually have a CRM that had a single view of the customer. And those are hard conversations. Yeah. yeah I mean, because I, I sort of delineate the world into commodity technologies and differentiating technologies. And, and one of the things that I, I love and I love in a very ironic and sarcastic way is how much people fret about their e-commerce platform. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we selected Demandware and they're best in class. I'm like, well, best in class, like all your competitors use it. Yeah. Like, is this really a differentiator? Like, wh- like, and that's not a shot at Hybris or Demandware. They both do the job, right? But they're not strategic. Yeah. Like they're not, like, because everybody uses them. And so how are you going to truly differentiate your brand and, and think about it in a way that's creative? Getting out of the group think in this industry is scary. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's something we've had to do over the last year. It goes to the customization stuff we were talking about earlier, machine learning. I mean, that's everybody's doing it. So there is no differentiation anymore when everyone's doing this. So I'm, I'm going to totally agree with you. Uh, but I just want to double check your conclusion on that. Right. Like, so I don't think any of those platforms are differentiating and I don't think you win by picking the right one. You could certainly lose by having a bad implementation sure. with any of them. Um, but, uh, I don't think that the conclusion is, so you should build your own platform. No, no. Good Lord, no. Uh, But we still see a lot of that. Well, I mean, I think you have to decide what your brand differentiation is. And if your brand differentiation is, I'm going to build a better e-com platform, God bless you, right? But you better invest in it. Um, I would hope that Toomey is going to invest more into continuing to build the greatest bags on the face of the earth, as opposed to becoming an e-commerce platform company. Right. And content and personalization yeah. based on the unique context and data you have from your customers. And exactly all right. Those like the things. And, and, to, and to us, like we, we have this remarkable treasure trove of data, which is honestly like the data that I'm most interested in just from a consumer perspective as just sort of a Toomey fan is the after sales data, the warranty and repair data. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the number one indicator of long term lifetime value we see is people that have their bag break. Like, how does that make any sense? Right. It's because things happen, right? You want a bag for seven years and you hear these stories of people that are wheeling their bag from an airport, a wheel pops off and they end up going to a Toomey store and we give them a loaner. Like we have that customer. You do that? Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah, we do that. And so like that is where we have a competitive advantage that Amazon cannot do. Yeah. Right. So we need to keep on doing stuff like that. Yeah. Instead of trying to beat them at their own game. Yeah. Not to digress, but the, is there a little bit of a donut in the Toomey warranty 
brand like I, I feel like Tumi was born with this amazing warranty and the brand I think changed hands a couple of times yeah and that warranty was sort of eroded and now you're 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 clearly like getting its back yeah and and we I would say as a brand we overcorrected a little bit to your point as we went through I don't know what the actual numbers it was before my time but I think it was two different private equity transaction uh, transactions we kind of slowly gotten back to realizing that it's what we have like we have the best materials on earth um, we have the best after sales service on earth. And the more we erode it, that differentiation and that brand differentiation goes away. Right. So we, we're certainly, uh, I would like to think that we're the best in the industry still, but I think it's a fair statement. Dan's going to return now. Was it three bags? I, Got any dings and duffs on there? I, <laughs> I have little, little things that I can get. Uh, a little squeaky for. wheel. Yeah. 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 You just cool. changed my life, man. Yeah. I do what I can. <laughs> All right. And it happened here on the Jason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone listening. Yeah. Yeah. Call. <laughs> um, so Dan, you, you talked to, I'd imagine hundreds, if not thousands of retailers and brands about pricing strategy and deals. What, what are some of the recommendations you make to folks? You, you, um, you know, we were surprised you talked about map pricing. As yeah, a I think Charlie's thing. right that, uh, for, well, it's not for every brand, but it is yeah. for, uh, brands, uh, that, uh, that aspire to be something, uh, you have to be able to differentiate yourself and, and not constantly be on sale. It's because otherwise you are racing to the bottom, like you said earlier. So th- one of the one of the key things that uh, that Charlie did say that I don't think you could say often enough is to control your pricing. Mm-hmm. So one of the all, all the tricks you can use to to game the system, like changing the skews so that the the that the buyer can't find a comparison, those have bad experiences to the buyer. The buyer was looking for a comparison. So I think you want to keep in mind that as you do those kind of strategies, that these are your customers that you're that you're uh, and sometimes infuriating. And so you can go a little bit too far, perhaps, and possibly uh, make it so that the customer can't feel that they find the information and don't feel they have the confidence to complete the purchase. Okay. That's, that's not necessarily pricing strategy, but that's part of your overall strategy to be able to not uh, create... Uh, competitive pricing and and i don't want to overplay that but i i know it's something that users will will find and that you shouldn't overdo but uh, one of the key things for for what you're talking about is is when you're a to me kind of brand you can definitely do this much more easily than you can with an american tourister i find something like samsonite to be the really fascinating one because there is so much diversity in that brand i remember the black label mm-hmm. and so you had this product that was aspired to be a to esque and then you have the stuff where there's five bags from Samsonite for $99 at Costco. And you have all this diff, you know, variation mm-hmm. in your brand. And so that's a really messy pricing, messy pricing strategy. And when you have that kind of noise, it affects the consumer choices as well. They don't know what they're getting at that point. Is Samsonite high-end or mid-range or low-end? Uh, am I getting a good deal from e-bags right now? Or am I getting kind of the everyday deal? Yeah. You start to really have a lot of confusion for the user. So owning your price is, is what you have to and Scott, you, you referenced something a little bit earlier that I, I would say to all the, the brands listening, wholesalers are really clever. So it's not as simple as map pricing. Every wholesaler will now do a spend $500, get a $50 gift card. Yeah. Right? And so that's just as bad. <laughs> yeah. you got to be opted out of those. Um, eBags has a very famous uh, loyalty program. What do you do about that? Right? Mm-hmm. So just make sure you're thinking about it beyond just pricing because there's now – crawlers everywhere that they can tell you if your price is not being matched right yeah. and they'll tell you like hey these are the violators online but those promos skirt that issue and it's yeah. much harder to track yeah absolutely well that keeps the crawlers in business yeah exactly right <laughs> um dan i'm curious like, you guys have all this great insight as to which of those deals move the needle on actual yeah. consumer behavior have you collaborated with any of the manufacturers when they're creating their deals like are we we only really work with the retailers, but we work with retailer uh, that retailers that are brands. And what w- one of the things that we love to do with the retailers we can we can segment our audience so we can do a test promotion with you. So you could say, hey, I want to only try this promotion, and I want to try it with something very specific, and see how that's performing. And we can measure that uh, basically A/B tested for you. And so you can use information from our system in other promotions and other pricing promotions you use elsewhere. And it's fun for us because what we're able to do for the, that segment is have some exclusivity of the offer that we're introducing into that uh, that user's day. Yeah. And ultimately, the whole point of what we do is helping that user just find something they want to buy. That the, the joy of getting something is is our bread and butter and the thing we can't forget our, that we do. Mm-hmm. It's really important. seems like a lot of retailers are still obsessed with getting uh, people in stores. Do you guys see 
get pitched those kinds of deals and it's like really hard without a coupon code it's yeah. hard to kind of track the, the yeah, loop on that i would say that we are 95 percent purely um, online online yeah. uh, we uh, the problem is tracking there's solutions that do tracking for when you want to bring people into the store but um uh, and i'm, I'm including that 95 percent older online for in-store pickup yeah uh, but for actual true uh in-store experiences it's just not something that that we can track very easily and the providers uh don't do that good a job. There's, I think that's one of the things that something like Retail Me Not's app does well. Yeah, and there there are solutions like that. It's just not a space that we're in. Yeah, that's uh, you know one topic we love to talk about is mobile, and that seemed to really catch a lot of the super affiliates by surprise. Like mm-hmm. this kind of see move to mobile. Um, I think Retail Me Not went through kind of a rough period. Maybe it's their own little trough of disillusionment, uh, but they've kind of come back to the other side of that, and now they have you know a lot of users of their app. How, how have you guys? How have you guys navigated through that that changeover to mobile by the so, consumer? So the uh, the gold standard for us is uh, is Amazon, mm-hmm. and uh, so when we look at Amazon, what we see is we see three to one desktop to mobile conversion. In other words, a mobile visit to Amazon is going to earn about a third less as um, a desktop visit, and that's mm-hmm. not just us. That's kind of pretty much the standard. And so what we find is that uh, no matter what we do on mobile, especially in the app, we're going to see that from just about everybody. That's the best case. Yep. Uh, we actually ran this this uh, this interesting experiment, which I really didn't expect uh, to, the result that happened. So we um, we saw that some of our clients we were seeing conversion rates where it was a hundredth of desktop on mobile or five hundredth uh, of desktop, and we're like, that's crazy. There must be a tracking problem. Mm-hmm. So we actually got clean phones, went to a Wi-Fi network that wasn't in our building, and. And place orders uh, from those clients to be sure that we, that they were the tracking information was being passed along correctly. And uh, in every case where we did that, we found that the information was being tracked. Uh, so what that means is that there's not a tracking problem when you're seeing really really poor mobile conversion. It's probably a UX problem. Yeah. And that's something that as much as we want to help the retailer, we can't fix for the retailer. Yeah. Absolutely. That's fascinating. We talk a lot about that mobile gap and and across a wide variety of retailers and industries, it's like one third. Yeah. But what's interesting is the sort of urban legend is always that Amazon is actually an outlier that's much better than that. Um, and it sounds like you're saying it when you refer traffic to Amazon, you're seeing that same sort of mobile gap. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we see some retailers beat it. Sure. Uh, but the vast majority are underperforming it. And um, and the crazy part is some of them underperforming it uh, at, at, at you know a tenth to a hundredth of what yeah. of what that should be. That's that's bizarre. It just sh- it it shouldn't be that. Generally, way. when I see something like a hundredth, something is fundamentally broken. Like exactly. it's actually like a checkout obstruct. Well, yeah, or, or, or like an obstruction in checkout when that we, you, when you can't buy. At, at Toomey, we had a when I joined Toomey, the mobile page load time on average was eleven seconds. Like yeah, good luck, yeah. good luck. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like your conversion not gonna be any good, right? Yeah. So there's there's certain things that are just fundamentally broken. Yeah. We certainly talk about that one a lot. Uh, speed is one of the like only reliable correlations that we find that like literally every time you see uh, page load times decrease, you see conversion increase. Yeah. Uh, we we had a uh, smart engineer who uh, took it on himself to just experiment with it. And I believe he found that conversion rate increased by 20% uh, per second that he knocked off. Yeah, we, that sounds about right for us. It's crazy, right? Cool. Very cool. Well, it has happened again. We have uh, flown through our allotted time. But uh, greatly want to uh, thank you guys for taking the time out of the busy party to join us on the little podcast. That's what we went first. I mean, now we can just go get a drink, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, Let's do that. So. We're going to do another one after you've had a few more cocktails. <laughs> that, that'll be uh, the, the blue podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Charlie and Dan. We really appreciate you being on the Jason and Scott Show. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to the Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.